Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke. It's uh, been a journey since the first week of December, and it's, been, and it's really an awesome uh, gospel. I've always wanted to preach this gospel. We went through the book of Acts uh, a couple of years ago, which is another, it's actually the continuation of this letter, this book that Luke wrote, and it was about the birth of the church, and it was written by Luke, and again, he starts the book of Acts off the way he does the gospel of Luke to his dear friend Theophilus. And he wants his friend Theophilus and the Holy Spirit, I believe, wants by extension you and I to have absolute certainty about who Jesus is, about who he is, that he is God, that he is God in the flesh. And so I'm going to read verses from chapter 5, verses 12 to 16 this morning. Small passage, amazing, amazing story. And then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our message for today. Message title for today is Clean Indeed. Clean Indeed. Read with me. Chapter 5 of Luke, verses 12 to 16. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Let's do that. Pray with me, would you? Father, once again, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for drawing us here. This is not an accident, Father. Um, It's not just random chance. We are all here today because, Lord, Holy Spirit, you want us to hear this word from you, not from me. (laughs) So I I pray, Lord, I really pray that you would just take these words, these thoughts, and, and Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate all of our minds this morning. Teach us, teach us about who Jesus is and the wonderful things that He has done to make us clean. And we pray this in His worthy name. Amen. There are probably a million things that we should love about Jesus, and we should admire about Him. But the one thing, uh, especially for me, an ex-businessman come to ministry um, later in life, is how absolutely focused and dedicated all the time Jesus was to the mission. He just knew so clearly why he was here. There there was no taking him off his game, and and people tried. Satan certainly tried. We've already been through that passage. Even his disciples tried, and he told them, Peter especially, get behind me. He was always on mission. And it's pretty clear, even so far in the gospel, that we can see the three main things that Jesus considered his mission and the things that he stayed focused on. The first is, is that even from the very beginning, as we've already seen, he, he said, I have come to do one thing primarily. Preach repentance, for the kingdom of God is here in me. And everywhere he went, he kept preaching that same message, that same gospel, consistently, never stopped, in city after city after city. And why? Because it's the gospel. It's the truth. 
And the only way that you can be saved, that I can be saved, is through hearing the Word of God and know the gospel. Well, we also know, uh, Theophilus and Luke would know, that Jesus came to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live, and then to die the death that you and I deserve for our sins and our brokenness and our rebellion against God, so that by rising from the dead, He can provide for us the forgiveness, the freedom, and the eternal eternal life with Him and with the Father that we do not deserve. (laughs) That's the second reason. It's a big reason. But there's a final part, and that part about the mission that he was dedicated to was the calling and the making of disciples who make disciples. And we saw that, that last week in the story about Peter in the boat and and the miracle fish, we saw that in the last verse, in chapter 5, verse 11, just previous to what we read this morning, we saw these words, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And and that's what Jesus did right from the very start. He started calling men to follow him. Women followed him too, but he specifically called these men by name, and he called them to follow him because part of his mission was to make disciples, not just converts, hear this, but disciples who would go and make disciples just like him. You see, he was sent by the Father. He was sent on mission by the Father, and you all know Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he then sends us. The disciples that he has made sends them into this world to make disciples who make disciples. That's your job description if you're willing to accept it. (laughs) It's wonderful, really, how the four Gospels dovetail. They they essentially tell us the same story, but from slightly different perspectives and to slightly different people groups. And as I mentioned to you last week, Luke is the only one who records the story of Simon Peter in the boat and the miraculous catch of fish. Now, the main point, of course, of that story was the call that Jesus had on Peter's life and how being in the boat with Jesus, hearing him preach the truth of the gospel of God's Word, and then sensing just feet from this man, the pure holiness, the pure holiness of Jesus moved Peter to repent, to fall at his feet and and tell him, I'm a sinful man, get away from me, get away from me. But then he heard Jesus' wonderful words don't be afraid. It's okay. I actually want you to become my partner in business. So follow me. Leave your business and your partnership and follow me. Matthew records these events of the calling of these men in another way. Same story, same situation, just kind of condensed over a few days. And we read in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 25, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting an end of the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the same two guys that left with Peter that we saw last week in Luke, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what happens next, actually, in Matthew's gospel is a key, and that's why I'm showing to to you this morning to helping us understand our text for today, our passage for today. 
Jesus has called four men so far we see in Matthew. And if, if it were you or I today, if it was me especially because of the, you know, I don't know, maybe it's my business background or just my, my educational thinking background, but if it were you or I today, we'd be thinking, okay, that's great. We've got, we got a few men. We've got a few guys following us. And, and I've done this here at the Rock Church where I've called men out and, and to, to, you know, like follow me as I'm following Jesus and teach them theology. So the first thing we would think of do, doing, right, is to have a Bible class, right? I mean, these guys are fishermen. What do they know about the gospel, about preaching repentance? Nothing. You would think that Jesus would at least have a week or two long retreat, right? Like, come here, I got to teach you some systematic theology, get some basics down. I don't want you guys making a fool of yourselves or me when we go out there publicly. That is not what he does at all. Isn't that odd? It's not what he does at all. When he calls them in Matthew's gospel, what we see him doing is say, okay, follow me. And then immediately, immediately, he takes them on a road trip. He immediately takes them into ministry, his ministry, and says, okay, watch me as I'm doing ministry. And and what we read right after that in that same passage in Matthew is this, and he went throughout all of Galilee, which is where we are in Luke, right? We're in Galilee, and throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue. So they're getting some Bible lessons here, right? They've already been getting it because they've heard him preach in a few synagogues to this point. So they're getting a little bit of that there. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming, which is preaching really 101, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them all. And it ends with, of course, and great crowds. (laughs) Yeah. Great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So let me explain and pull this together why I believe this is key to understanding our passage for today. I believe Luke, so far in his gospel, is painting a picture for us, for Theophilus, and for you and I. It's a picture for his good friend. It's the picture of the man who is God. He's been declaring that and proving that, who came to fulfill Isaiah's words, which we heard come out of Jesus' mouth in his home synagogue in Nazareth just a few weeks ago, where Jesus said to them, the actual prophecy coming true in their midst, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim, preach, good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, to preach the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the amazing thing, and I've said this before in the past couple of weeks, the amazing thing about Jesus is that he not only uttered these words, (laughs) that this is what he was going to do, he immediately got up and started doing it. (laughs) He, He not only preached a message, he went and lived it casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching the gospel. He's been demonstrating to all of the people everywhere that he goes that only God, only Jesus has the answer to the three biggest problems that all of us in humanity face. We've been over this, but let me repeat. The problem of evil, science, technology, human wisdom cannot solve this problem. The problem of evil, the problem of suffering, and the problem of death. Jesus is saying, I've come to be the solution to these three biggest problems. And he goes about demonstrating it. 
And to accomplish his mission, he takes his early disciples on this road trip, showing them what his life, what his ministry, which will he, he will pass on to them and to you and to me what it looks like. It's right here. The manual's right here. We should know what it looks like and how then we should live as a result of that. So today's story is one of actually three in a row. It's actually three stories in a row, the, the, Peter, the Peter story and the miracle fish last week, this story today about the leper, and then we'll see the paralyzed, the paralytic man next week. They're, they're three linked stories, which are all about the mission. They're all amazingly about the mission of Jesus Christ. So last week we saw Peter. That call came after Jesus preached the kingdom to the great crowd on the shore and then performed an amazing miracle for Peter and his men. Now, here's the thing from last week's message, and it didn't really come up in our small groups this week. I thought maybe someone might ask it. But we might misunderstand the purpose of what happened in that passage with Peter and the fish and the call last week if we're not careful. We, we might think that, you know, Jesus' goal was something different. Let me explain in the negative. What Jesus isn't saying is that those who pursue full-time ministry, like myself, for example, are better servants of Jesus Christ or better missionaries. He's not saying that at all. But some people might, might assume that. Well, yeah, see, if you really want to be a, a true follower of Jesus, like full-on, all in with Christ, you need to leave your job and become a missionary, full-time pastor, or associate pastor, children's worker, something like that. Not what that passage is about at all, actually. It might appear to be that way. The real lesson for Peter and for you and I is this, that your work, your career is not the ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing. There is something greater, greater to give yourself to, myself to, than that, as a Christian especially, especially as a Christian. Work's a good thing. It was prescribed in the garden before the fall that we were to work and tend, and care for God's creation. So work is a good thing. It's a very good thing. And it's the perfect place, this, listen to this, this, it's the perfect place to be on mission with Jesus Christ because it's the one primary place that all of us have to go to, need to go to, and when we go there, we are to be on mission with Him. We are sent into our workplace. And so that story really is about, really about that. It's about our workplace and the people group associated with it. But it's also about the fact that that workplace, that career, cannot become, should not become the ultimate thing to you in your life. Anyone ever suffered from that? <laughs> you see, because, again, I feel like I'm the only one who's got the T-shirt here, okay? Because I sure did. You know, I didn't become a full-time pastor, go back to school and, and learn some more theology to become a pastor until I was past 50 years of age. And before that, I was pretty driven in business to become successful. And when things weren't working out for me, my identity suffered, and it crushed me at times. And Jesus is actually calling Peter to go, come on, and you and I, don't make this an ultimate thing. Because if you do, it'll fail you. It always will fail you. So this is the idea here is that this is not where we're to get our identity from. And we get our identity from Jesus Christ. We get it from Him and the ministry and mission that He's called us to. And listen, I'll tell you what, you already know this. Going into your workplace and, and the people group that we're going to see associated with this story today, 
It's hard work to go into your workplace and do your job, let alone go into that place and be Jesus. <laughs> be a missionary in that place. That's hard work. So you need to be prepared for it. So this story today is about reaching another people group. And that's why it's about a continuing three-part story of Jesus on mission. So let's look at the passage for today. I'll put the first verse back on screen. It says this in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, this is kind of interesting because we, we've, we've learned early on that Luke is He's Dr. Luke, right? He is a physician, but he's also a historian, uh, like a factician. He's a documentarian. He's writing an orderly account, but he is a physician. And we actually see that in this verse because he, he tells us that this man is full of leprosy. This is a description that a doctor would give, and it's a description that, descri- that basically is saying that in this man's case, the disease has taken its full course. So he is as grotesque and as dirty and as smelly as someone with leprosy can possibly be. And so I I know today none of you want us to get into the gruesome details of what this disease actually does, but we do need to look at some aspects of leprosy so that we'll understand what's going on here. Uh, Today, leprosy is also known as Hansen's disease, and that's due to the man who discovered the cause for the disease, which led to the cure. And so leprosy is also known as that. It's basically a bacterial infection, um, but it's most notable for the way it disfigures a person. But it's not the disease, it's not the bacterium that's causing the disfigurement. What's happening is, is that it's numbing the skin, numbing the extremities, to the point where the person with leprosy has no idea. They have no touch. They have no feel. So even grabbing a, a table, grabbing a, 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 a cane to walk with, well, anything, the pressure applied would maybe, maybe be too great. They would hurt their limbs. Also, touching things that are hot. And so most of the th- reasons why people with leprosy lose limbs, lose fingers, um, and have stumps for hands is not because of the disease per se. The bacteria isn't doing that, but it's numbing them to the point where they have no idea that they're hurting themselves. They have no feeling. There's no touch. So the man here in Luke would not only have not had any feeling for many years, he would not have been touched by anyone else for decades. And if he had, he wouldn't have felt it. Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, that lovely book that most of you are really hoping we will preach through one day, (laughs) we're going to. It is actually a phenomenal book. It describes in detail how a person with leprosy should be treated. And at first, when you hear these words and you read the the description, it sounds kind of harsh. It's kind of like, well, God's really condemning these people. No, it's actually a mildly contagious disease. The only way that you can get it is through close contact with a person who has the disease and so there's an actual prescription in Luke chapter 13, pardon me, Leviticus chapter 13. It says this. This is the instruction about what to do if a person has leprosy. It says this. The leprous person, you see here, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. They shall let their hair hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, 
unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, you can imagine the isolation and the humiliation that this disease in that culture, in that time, in that day, would cause, right? It's it's totally humiliating, and it's isolating. You've got this terrible, debilitating disease. You're getting sicker and sicker. You're losing fingers, losing limbs. And and in biblical times, in the Old Testament and the New for that matter, recovery from leprosy was truly extremely, extremely, extremely rare. There were no drugs to treat it. It was, in fact, considered a devastating disease that would lead to death. There was no cure for it. Um, Those with leprosy were literally called dead men walking. That's what they were called. On top of all that, you've been ostracized from your family, from your community, and from worship. You you can't come to synagogue. You're not allowed. It's a complete cutting off from everyone you love, everyone you know, complete isolation. If you were ever seen in public in the city, which was forbidden actually, you had to dress down like a homeless person. And whenever you came in sight of another person, you had to bow your head, you had to cover your lip, and, and you had to scream out loud enough so they would hear you, unclean, unclean, all the time. As a result, lepers were homeless beggars because nobody would hire them. They couldn't get work. It was impossible. They typically lived in bands of other fellow lepers. They depended on family members and friends, actually, to come to the outskirts of the city and drop some food there or some supplies or some medication just to, for, the, for the hurt and the pain, who would then run away, and they would rely on that. Or they'd be thieves. It was the only choice. But of course, of course, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, right, the great religious elite, they just decided to add to God's Word just to make things worse, you know, for good measure, right? Because we have to protect ourselves from these, these diseased, unclean people. And so they added to the Word of God. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes that if a leper entered a house, now that house was considered unclean. And, I mean, you think your house isn't clean, right? I mean, that, what that meant, what they had to then go through, and we'll see a little bit of this a little later, and I'm hoping in small group this week you'll study it actually in Le- Leviticus chapter 14, what was required to make a person or a house or anything clean again? A lot of work. But also they came up with this amazing idea. They thought, well, you know, it's like because it, it is contagious. And so they, they came up with this idea, this rule, this law, that there were so many, there was a distance that you had to keep from a person who had leprosy. And, and interestingly enough, they decided that there was a difference in how many feet you had to be away from that person depending on whether or not they were upwind or downwind from you. <laughs> like you got to carry a manual around with you. Excuse me. Is it? I mean, they, they made this stuff up. But it wasn't funny. I mean, it wasn't funny in that day, was it? It was it's tragic. Now, if all of that was not bad enough, if all of that's not bad enough, the religious elite, even though God never said this, ever says this, 
the religious leaders in that day basically decided, oh yeah, yeah, the reason why you have this disease which will lead to death is because you are the greatest sinner. This is God's judgment on you. <laughs> wow. So now imagine, come on, imagine. Imagine if you had this disease today and there was no cure for it. Imagine you, you want to go to Nestor's and pick out a few things. You want to go to the ledge for a coffee. You want to actually just be able to come into the city. You know, you don't, you're not just up at Cat Lake. You want to come into the city. And, and you want to come here. And, and, and in order to do that, you've got to basically... I mean, not only are you disfigured from the disease, but you've got to dress like a homeless person. You've got to let your hair go all crazy, right? And anytime you walk in and people who've known you before and, and they see you, you've got to start yelling out, unclean, unclean. So, big question. Why is this story here? Is this story here just to make us feel terrible for this man? No. No, actually, there's much more going on here, and it all has to do with two things, the mission and the gospel. And that's why it's so beautiful. It's so, so beautiful. I read in one commentary, it's interesting, um, that a man by the name of R.C. Trench, um, he was a, a Greek scholar. He was also the inspiration for and the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. He was a believer. He's a Christian. And... Um, Part of what led up to him defining leprosy in the Oxford English Dictionary uh, was some writings that he made where he said this. He said, I consider the plight of the leper that it did in fact illustrate the effects of sin, even though the leper was not any more sinful than anyone else, not more sinful than even myself. He said this about leprosy in one of his writings. It is the outward and visible sign of the innermost spiritual corruption. He personally saw the leper, even though he was not more sinful than him, than you or than myself, as a parable for sin. Now, we know that Jesus is going to get into in Luke and, and in Matthew, he does the same, into preaching parables, which are not true stories, but they're images. This is a true story. But I think we can see, as this man says, that this, this is a parable of sin, and we should see it that way. Not just this man who, who Jesus heals him. That is amazing. That is lovely. But he's doing the same for you and I, and that is the point. In that way, then, the leper represents all of us apart from the cleansing, shed blood of Jesus Christ. We sang about that today. That fount, that fount, we just don't see our leprosy in the same way, do we? We don't see it that way. We certainly don't present it, right? We, we get to put on our best outward appearance, especially on Instagram, Facebook, and, you know, we do, don't we? We, we get to make ourselves up, do our hair, uh, dress clean and well, go out looking our very best. Who's to see what's really going on? How would you know? How would I know? How would you know about me? Because of the way I'm, I mean, look at the way I'm dressed. Pretty clean, right? How would you know? Well, the Bible tells us repeatedly, you guys know this, that we are all unclean. In fact, we were born that way. That's the truth, and that's hard 
to accept, even for the Christian. It's very hard for people in our world to accept that. Well, we weren't born that way. We were born innocent, and the world and, you know, things and circumstances made us ugly or sinful. Or No, no, no. We were born unclean. And for most of, it is, most of us, it is the way that we continue to naturally live. Spiritually, listen, all of us without Christ are dead men and dead women walking in our transgressions and our sins. That is how I think we should read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We all need the cleansing that only Jesus can provide. So now we see the hopelessness of this man as he approaches Jesus, right? I mean, he's, it's a hopeless situation, isn't it? He's hopeless. He knows he's a dead man walking. He has no hope. He's been living this way probably for decades. He falls flat on his face and look at the text. He begs Jesus. I'm begging you. He truly is a beggar. That's what poor in spirit means. That's what poor in spirit means. Do, do, you, listen, do you realize how hard this was for him? It was very hard for him to come into the city. He knew that he was actually taking his life in his hands. The penalty for doing what he's doing, especially approaching a rabbi that Jesus was now becoming seen as, the penalty was stoning death sooner than later. Actually, he was placing his whole life in the hands of the one that he believed already. If he willed, could make him clean. It's an amazing picture here. His words are beautiful. He, listen, he didn't ask. He doesn't ask, heal me. He asks, make me clean. This is a Jewish man. He knows maybe he himself has come to believe that this is God's judgment upon him. And he knows what he wants more than the physical healing, he might even at this point think that that's not possible. Look at how mutilated I am. He wants to be spiritually cleansed, first and foremost. And I believe that Jesus recognizes that, that Jesus sees that, because his response in verse 13 is so simple. <laughs> and Luke simply records this this way. And Jesus stretched out his hand, stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately they followed him. Immediately, same word, the leprosy left him. Now, we aren't told, but I am sure of this. It didn't just leave him and he was able to hobble away, now saved from his spiritual uncleanliness. No, right in front of the crowd, right in front of his disciples, this man's limbs were restored, his skin was completely restored, and he is clean. Jesus doesn't go halfway, does he? He goes all the way and fully cleanses this man. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus had compassion for this man. In other words, his very face, his visage was emotionally moved for this man. And for the request that this man gave to be healed, to be cleansed. But we also read something very important here. Jesus did something incredibly intentional. He stretched out his hand 
and he touched him. (laughs) Now, we need to understand that two things. Number one, Jesus didn't need to touch him to heal him, did he? That's an important thing, distinction in the story for us to understand. We know from other passages that from a distance he told a centurion, your daughter's healed. Just go home. She's okay. He doesn't have to touch him to heal him. This touch means something else. In fact, I am certain that the minute that Jesus says, I will be clean and is touching him, he's already clean and cleansed, and now he can feel for the first time human touch. human touch. Can you imagine what that meant to this man? I mean, really. What did it mean to this man? I remember years ago when I I worked for three years full-time at Union Gospel Mission and then did consulting for them for another 12. But I remember first working there and going to the daily feedings of men and women from the street and then, of course, the big banquets that they would put on. And I would would notice the volunteers who wanted to come and wanted to serve the homeless and serve the the poor on the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is awesome. But I noticed that when people first, the first time they would come, they were, oh, they, they were just very cautious about touching or being touched. And, and like for a lot of different reasons. But I have to confess, when I first started there working full-time, I saw some people who wore, you know, rubber gloves, like the clear plastic rubber gloves, because like there's, there's diseases there, and I actually had to have shots to... But I also know that the biggest reason for me, the biggest problem was my own discomfort. Some of these men smelled pretty badly. But once I got over that, and occasionally started putting my hand on the back of a man who would come out of the chapel having heard the gospel and then was going to a meal, that they would turn and look at you with a smile. Nobody touched them. People would not touch them. So this is, this is amazing what we're seeing here. And Jesus just touches and cleans this man. Now, I'm sure most of you realize this yet, but maybe you didn't. But Jesus has just caused a big problem for himself. He just caused a big problem because now his disciples were probably like, Jesus, what are you doing? But but the fact that Jesus went out and touched this this leper meant that he was now ceremonially unclean, right? That's what they would have thought. In fact, we know we're going to see this next week, but we also know from our passage, jumping forward one verse, it says this, but now even more. The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, the report went out about him, but not because of the miracles and all the wonderful healings he was doing. As we will see next week, the report went as far as Jerusalem, and now the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the religious guys were like, wait a second, he touched a leper? We're going to go and check this out. You're going to have to be here next week to hear the conclusion of that because it's pretty amazing what happens there in the third part of this story. So it's interesting. Well, what they didn't understand, of course, at that time, the disciples didn't, the religious leaders didn't, but after the crucifixion, after the Holy Spirit, the the resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, they now understand. We've already seen this. With Jesus, everything's being turned around. It's the great reversal. Jesus is God. God can't be made unclean. And, and this is the great 
truth of what happens here. I remember many years ago, we were at a, a retreat, a pastor's and, and spouse's retreat, and we had a speaker. His name was Mark, Mark Buchanan. Some of you might know him, uh, author of some amazing books on prayer and other things. Um, but he gave a great illustration. He had a little water bottle on the table, and his point was this. He goes, you know, in the Old Testament and even in the days of Jesus when this was happening, it was true. They were taught that unclean, impure things, if you touched them, could make you unclean. But it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't like supposed to be that way. This is not the way things should be. And, and so they also missed the picture that the Messiah would turn everything around. And so with Jesus, it's no, it's the opposite. Now with Jesus, in His blood, in His shed blood, for you and for me, now what Jesus touches is made clean. And you know what? That means a, a lot about the mission that He's sending you and I into, doesn't it? Because how many of us have been raised in churches where it's like, well, all the world, you know, it's unclean, it's bad, can't go to these places or those places or watch this or watch that because it's, it's unclean. And if you do that, you're going to become unclean, Christian. Think about that one, okay? Maybe talk about that one in missional community group this week. Jesus has changed that paradigm, guys. He's changed that paradigm, and it's a beautiful and beautiful thing. And then in verse 14, it says this. We'll go back to that. He says, And he charged him, the leper who's been healed, to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. Now, this is really amazing. This is about Leviticus 14, and I do want you in small group this week to read that and see the, the beauty behind what God prescribed in the Old Testament. But let me just give you a quick synopsis of what would have happened so that we understand in our conclusion today. It's really beautiful. It's another one of those examples of how the Old Testament laws and, and methods for cleansing and for redemption and for atonement, etc., were really pictures about Jesus. <laughs> they were foreshadowing of the work and the ministry of Christ. It's, it's, it's amazing that we see this. It actually required, uh, Leviticus 14 will show you this, for the um, leper to be, once they were healed, to be received back into community. It was actually an eight-day process that began with the healed leper meeting with a local priest, but again, outside the city. And what they would do is they'd take two birds, two little birds, and the first bird uh, would be sacrificed. And, and it's the blood from that first bird would be actually caught in a, in a, in a clay pot, and it would be caught over some fresh water, which, which was a symbol of cleansing. And then the second bird would be taken and be wrapped in hyssop and, and a few other things, uh, some wood chips and some yarn, and, and it would be dipped in the blood of the first bird, look at this, and then sprinkled over the leper seven times continuing to dip into the sacrificed bird's blood and sprinkled on the leper seven times. Then the leper was declared clean by the priest. But there was more. He would have to shave himself and do a bunch of other things. But then the whole point was, now he was clean. Now he was free to re re return to his family and to his community. And you know what? There would be a huge, huge celebration. Angels would be singing as he comes back or she comes back. It's an amazing picture of Jesus Christ's blood shed for you and for me, the blood that washes away all of our sin, all of our uncleanness forever. Just another day in the ministry of Jesus Christ, right? Just another day in the ongoing mission of Jesus Christ, which ends with, but he would withdraw 
to desolate places and pray. Yeah. Good example for us, right? Jesus needed rest and to be renewed and to be refreshed by the Holy Spirit as He continued on mission. So let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like an outcast? Ever felt like you didn't fit in? Didn't measure up? Had messed up so badly that you were not welcome in your own family or especially in those cleaned up perfect churches that are out there? Ever felt like your poverty, your lack of whatever made you feel unqualified to receive the approval and the acceptance and the love of anyone, let alone God? Let alone God? Well, obviously, there's good news. There's really good news here. Jesus came for people just like you and just like me. That's who He came for. Luke shows us throughout his gospel, and the other gospels do as well, that Jesus was constantly for and about being with outcasts and outsiders. It's one of the reasons why they wanted him crucified. The religious people, that is. And and the crazy thing, this is always one thing that stood out for me, is they loved being around him too. (laughs) They weren't the people who felt judged and condemned by Jesus. Quite the opposite. It was the religious uber type that received his condemnation and certainly received his severest criticism. This is the mission, isn't it? This is the mission. The first few disciples are right there watching Jesus, learning the ropes from him, and they would go on to pass that on to other disciples who would make disciples, and 2,000 years later, here we are. That's the mission. So listen, friends, last week we saw Jesus call Peter and his friends to leave everything, including their great catch, the prophet. From, they left all of it on the beach, didn't they? Isn't that crazy? Like the biggest catch they probably ever had in the history of their business, they left it for others on the beach, and they followed Jesus. But listen, Jesus has always done, always does more than he asks of you or me, Right? He calls them to follow him and leave everything behind. What did Jesus already have done? He left heaven to come here and be one of us and be crucified. In the same way that all outcasts are relegated to the outskirts of society and cities, listen, Jesus did become the ultimate outcast, didn't he? Didn't he? Where was he crucified? On Golgotha? Where was Golgotha? Outside the city? He bore our sin. Listen, all of our leprosy. The leprosy of the world on himself so that you and I could be clean indeed to the praise of his glorious name. Amen? Pray with me, would you?